This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. These are interesting times. We have two live presenters and we're trying to tee up a telephone interview. And from next week, we will be uh, not able to come in. So we're looking at ways of providing content without actually having to come into the studio. So it will create uh, some challenges. Jan's busily working on the phone at the moment and I am going to read something in that case because here is a letter from F. Scott Fitzgerald quarantined in 1920 in the south of France during the Spanish influenza outbreak. Dearest Rosemary, it was a limpid, dreary day hung as in a basket from a single dull star. I thank you for your letter. Outside... I perceive what may be a collection of fallen leaves tussling against a trash can. It rings like jazz to my ears. The streets are that empty. It seems as though the bulk of the city has retreated to their quarters, rightfully so. At this time it seems very poignant to avoid all public spaces, even the bars, as I told Hemingway, but to that he punched me in the stomach, to which I asked if he had washed his hands. He hadn't. He is much the denier, that one. Why, he considers the virus to be just influenza. I'm curious of his sources. The officials have alerted us to ensure we have a month's worth of necessities. Zelda and I have stocked up on red wine, whiskey, rum, vermouth, absinthe, white wine, sherry, gin, and, Lord, if we need it, brandy. Please pray for us. You should see the square. Oh, it is terrible. I weep for the damned eventualities this future brings, the long afternoons rolling forward slowly on the ever-slick bottomless highball. Zed says it's no excuse to drink, but I just can't seem to steady my hand. In the distance from my brooding perch, the shoreline is cloaked in a dull haze where I can discern an unremitting penance that has been heading this way for a long, long while. And yet... Amongst the cracked cloud line of an evening's cast, I focus on a single strain of light calling me forth to believe in a better morrow. Faithfully yours, F. Scott Fitzgerald. So, folks, this is a pre-record I conducted with Andrew Darby about his work, Flight Lines. I have someone sitting opposite me just twitching to tell his story. The book is Flight Lines and the author is Andrew Darby. So, Andrew, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. I'm curious about the word twitching. Yes. I haven't really made a close study of twitching despite writing this book. Twitching is a word that is used by dedicated, some say obsessive birders and sometimes their detractors to um, indicate um, their preoccupation with finding the next bird. And observing birds. Mm. I did a bit of research, because it's not actually mentioned in the book, uh, the twitching behaviour of Howard Medhurst, who was one of the leading uh, bird watchers in the Mm. 1950s and 60s. But this book, in other words, is about birds, or in particular, one species of birds, the grey plover, uh, a dowish wallflower, of the shorebird dance. It spreads thinly around the world's margins and is often overlooked. What's the fascination with the grey plover, Well, let's start by working our way towards the bird from what we know. Probably the closest bird that we know to this 
is the masked lapwing. It's often called a plover, but it's actually a lapwing. But that's what we know as a plover. Now, go through that gate and think about the kinds of things that the lapwing does. Transfer them to the tidal flats of the world, the far-flung tidal flats of the world. And there is this small bird, not much bigger than a blackbird, grey when it's out of the breeding grounds, highly coloured up when it gets to the breeding grounds. Uh, And it is commonly found with others in the group of long-distance flying migratory shorebirds, the ultramarathon birds. Now, when you say ultramarathon, what sort of distance are we talking about? So the two birds that I particularly follow, which were satellite-tagged in South Australia and flew north, on their first flight, each of them flew over the entirety of Australia, of Indonesia, of the Philippines, to land one of them in Taiwan and the other in southern China. So each of them took a non-stop flight of more than 7,000 kilometres. Just to give us a a sort of indication in layman's terms, when you're holding this bird, how much are you holding? Well, you're holding about a cup of sugar, not a big weight. You're holding something that really can be quite placid in the hand, despite its wildness. And you're holding, I guess, the promise of many generations of Arctic life, bird life. And they transcend boundaries in many ways in their journey. We've got arbitrary boundaries as people Mm. and borders, and they basically cross all of those hemispheres, international borders and such like. It's it's quite a phenomenal feat. If you want to get um, carried beyond the trivialities of human life like borders then migratory, long-distance migratory shorebirds are a really good way to start because their world passes through the margins of many countries but is not of one, uh, and they have a total disregard for human borders. Now, one of the things that the book sort of touches on as you look at this journey are the various forms of tagging that have occurred or the ability to follow from banding to rocket nets and now to satellites. So the satellites would give you an inordinate amount of opportunity to trace and be particular about what you see. Quite revelatory. They are um, give you almost near real-time information about where on the planet this bird is and what it's doing even, because if you have a look at it, say, on a breeding ground, you'll see it move from point to point to point as it feeds and then goes back to the central point, which is the nest. Uh, So, yes, it can be unrivaled information, um, and uh, it really is hugely illuminating. As opposed to the banding, which was more happenstance. Banding, as the book suggests, started in the late 1800s, but that would rely on someone actually catching the bird again. Well, exactly. Um, Either catching the bird again or killing it or finding it dead. The doyen of Australian uh, migratory shorebird studies, the late Clive Minton, when he lived in England, his first band on a migratory shorebird was on a lovely bird called a spotted redshank. And he was really pleased to have it in hand, really pleased to put the band on it. And some weeks later, he got the band back because it had been shot by the mayor of Perpignan in France, who returned the band with the address on it to Clive. Now, a couple of things fascinated me about the birds as I was reading this book. 
Um, the song lines. There's a, an, a connection here with an Indigenous song line as moving, uh, moving from group to group and changing as it goes. Mm. And there's an, an, an equivocal mention of what the birds do as well. Yes. Well, I'm careful to not impose my description on Indigenous cultures, but I hope that I have drawn out of the records of Indigenous cultures um, the great variety of names that this bird has as it travels, not just from Australia, but through China up to Siberia and across to North America, where it's pretty circumpolar. It has a series of lovely names, and they are um, there are really illuminating series too. You know, they describe often they describe the bird by its phonetic call. Uh, sometimes they describe it by its colouring. In Alaska, where I went, um, it was called Evatovik, and that means the scorched feathers bird. But so also, there's a similarity through the sort of landscape in many ways, yes. uh, depending yeah. on, on yes. which part of the world it's in. Yes. Now, for such a fragile creature, there are quite a number of threats in mm. this day and age. Mm. The threats for the grey plover at the moment? Well, we've got a bird here that has persisted down through evolutionary generations for about 130 million years, so it's not easily removed from the face of the earth. But while it's doing well, other... Others in the group of long-distance migratory shorebirds are not doing so well. Um, And as a whole, they're contracting in numbers. Um, There's four that have been listed on Australia's critically endangered list in recent years because of the problems they face. Well, pardon the analogy, but the canary in the coal mine? Well, certainly. You know, I think migratory shorebirds, we're coastal people generally, in Australia particularly, And when we look at the coasts, we should think about the health of our coasts by the presence or absence of birds like these. Well, there was an article in the paper just recently about the bristlebird down in Mallacoota, and it's a very endangered, just 40 bristlebirds on the New South Wales-Queensland border have been hit hard by the fire. So we could lose them after, as you say, Mm. centuries Mm. of their Mm. presence here. Mm. But, I mean... Chairman Mao did something particular with birds, which is horrifying. Mm. Yeah, well, um, back in the late 50s when Mao was uh, coming to the rise in China, um, he named sparrows as one of the four pests in China that needed to be eradicated. And, of course, such a uh, collective effort by compulsory effort by the Chinese um, had many... Um, side effects. I mean, obviously, the birds like sparrows weren't the only ones that were eradicated. Many woodland birds went. Um, And at the times of famine too, shorebirds were probably strong targets for food. Hmm. And, well, it destroyed an ecosystem in many ways. They were Hmm. overrun by insects and all Hmm. sorts of things. So they they play an essential role in the Ecosystem. Of course they do. That was exactly the result of, you know, removing birds from fields. And you've got then chemical contamination. You've got, uh, well, landscapes being taken over, marshlands and Mm. all of these sorts of things co-opted for people 
uh, which further endangers the shorebirds. In China, um, China is really critical because uh, the Yellow Sea, um, which is encompassed by the China and the Korean Peninsula, um, is a critical feeding ground for these birds on migration. They funnel up from right across a wide southern flyway through there and then funnel out to the north through Siberia to breeding grounds and the reverse happens when they come back. So that that particular sea is vital. And the future for the grey plover, what do you think? I think the, um, the future for the grey plover is uh, reasonable. You know, I, um, I think it's probably one of those birds that will hold on. But we need to look at those birds. We need to you know, grasp the importance of those birds and the example they give us of persistence and survival. And basically, yeah, we need to do more to protect them. Yes. If we can live in harmony with these birds instead of building out onto wetlands, then that will be an indication that we're beginning to understand our place on the coast. Well, the book is called Flight Lines, the author Andrew Darby, and it was released by Alan and Unwin. So, Andrew, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you so much. There we go. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Well, Fiona, I'm sorry about that. Um, as we are, it's, it's nothing to do with a virus. It's actually more to do with my technical uh, ability. And uh, thank you, David, and thank you, Leanne. Well, Fiona Anyway, Lowe, we're here now. Oh, we are. Let's, let's read on. <laughs> Fiona Lowe. The title of your new book is Just an Ordinary Family. So, well, an ordinary family, possibly that would be one with kids, grandparents, aunts and uncles. That's what the Hunter family look like, but are they? Well, I think they're a very ordinary family. They absolutely are. And the, thing that, the things that happen in this family can happen in any family. Well, in the prologue, we have Karen. Now, she's the, now the grandmother, but goes back in time when she was first a mother. No one tells you that being a mother, about being a mother, I both is both exhilarating and terrifying. Well, she's a mother of twins and she's just moved to a new place. That's right. And I think that that in itself would be terrifying. It's, it's hard enough having twins, let alone um, moving into a, into a new town. But they moved to a, a seaside town uh, with a very tight community. So as, as it says in the prologue, she was welcomed pretty quickly. And the last line in that prologue, now she's got twins, is, mm-hmm. I'll make things better, Alice. I'll keep you safe and protect you always. We wonder, may wonder right from the beginning, why just Alice? 
Why well, Alice was that? born, as, as often happens with twins, one twin is um, a lot smaller than the other, and Alice was born with a series of developmental delays. So her childhood was very much all about physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, tutoring, getting her up to speed. And, of course, her older twin um, had a perfect a perfect start to life. She was incredibly sporty and coordinated and very bright and very driven. So Alice has grown up working really hard but still always under the shadow of her slightly older sister. As even Alice says, the only thing that she's better at is art. So look, let's jump to Libby. Libby, the older twin in this ordinary family. There's husband Nick, two daughters and Libby is a doctor and she's very aware that she's still suffering grief. What from? Yes, um, unfortunately, well, they've got Nick and Libby have got um, two lovely little girls and they, um, Libby was pregnant, unexpectedly pregnant with their third child, um, which was a little boy and he was very sadly stillborn. Mm. And um, she's, that, that happened a couple of years ago and part of her coping mechanism is she's busy solving everyone else's problems rather than perhaps yeah. dealing with her own. But they also wanted to have another child and it wasn't just happening. Libby said, this is a quote from Fiona Lowe's book, Just an Ordinary Family, we want a baby. And Nick said, no, not if trying makes you miserable month after month, not when it turns sex into an event that has to be marked on the calendar along with paying the rates and mowing the lawn. <laughs> An ordinary family, but perhaps not well, a Well, that's right. And one. anyone, anyone who has tried to have a baby, and I had seven years of infertility, so that line came pretty much from my life experience where you have to be aware, because as human beings, we've pretty ineffectual at getting pregnant. We have a very narrow window once a month to conceive. Yes. So um, the other twin also has re- has a reason to return to Kenai Bay. She's also grieving. Yeah. What, well, what poor you... Alice. Alice had got her life on track and got her life sorted out and her mother had just started to relax about her. But um, Alice was off to dinner with her long-time partner thinking that this was the proposal and Alice oh. is very keen to have children because she's 34 and um, she got told, I don't love you enough. And that would have been bad enough, but she was working for um, his family's mm. company. So she lost her job, she lost her home and she had to come back to the small town of Kunai Bay where, you know, everyone knows everyone and women at 33 are supposed to have their lives organised, their career is supposed to be well established, they're supposed to be, you know, in a relationship, thinking about children and she's got none of that and she's mm. doing three or four part-time menial jobs in the summer rush and yeah, it's, now, it's twins, not great. Twins are expected to be each other's best friends. They were, Libby and Alice, until they were 12. Yeah, until puberty hit. I'm going to ask Fiona Lowe to read from page 19 about Libby's whole feel. Okay, so Alice, they were going into puberty and Alice, of course, had been striving to to keep up with her sister and was always about 18 months behind. And when puberty hits, that becomes a much bigger uh, distance. It wasn't Jess's sense of style that impressed Libby the most. It was the fact she was her own person. She refused to accept a hard time from anyone and she didn't conform or care what the other girls thought of her. She walked her own path. Jess's I don't give a damn attitude was intoxicating. It was a freedom Libby had never experienced. 
She'd been raised to always consider how her actions might affect others, especially her twin. But recently she'd had intense moments when she wanted to scream and break free, do what she wanted without having to worry about anyone else's feelings, to be a separate person from Alice. Oh, yes. Poor Alice. Well, Jess had a very different family background and in a small community everyone knew about her mother, Linda. The first dinner that Jess came to Libby's house, Libby's parents, Karen and Pete, they had a difference of opinion over the dinner table. What did Jess expect them to happen? Yeah, Jess was sitting there waiting for Peter to backhand um, Karen. Because um, Jess had been raised in a, in a, well, she actually was her mother. Her mother's an alcoholic and has had a series of um, uh, difficult relationships with men. And when they arrived in Kurnay Bay, when, when she was 13, she'd lost track of how many times she'd been evicted because mum had lost control mm. of the rent. So she had a pretty tough, she tough childhood. And she, um, and the house is in chaos, but her room isn't because Jess was trying to control what she could, which Mm. wasn't much. Well, Karen gave Jess support and enmeshed her into the Hunter family. Now, now grown up and with professional lives, but Libby pleads for Jess to come back to Kenai Bay with Leo. Who's Leo? That's right. Jess. Jess has had a. Um, Jess has had a baby. She's decided that. Um, she always said she didn't want to have children, but when she became um, a honorary auntie with Libby's kids, um, her biological clock went off, mm. and um, she decided to have a child on her own because she still didn't really trust men after her childhood. And um, the plan had been that she would, you know, stay in Sydney and raise yeah. this kid. But, of course, you know, two bouts of mastitis and trying to raise a child on your own, Libby mm. begs her to come home and be part of the family and, and let them, you know, look after her. They're all one big extended family and let the children, Libby's kids and, and Jess's little boy, grow up together as, you know, like cousins. Yeah. So, yeah, so Jess comes back and, and, Jess and she's Libby. an accountant and she works for, she has starts a business and her major client is Libby, the medical practice, mm-hmm. and she has a variety of other of other customers. So, yeah, she's she's finding her feet back in a town that she never planned to return to. Yeah. But because she's come back under with Libby's blessing, um, she's and she's an adult now, and so she's finally finding her feet back in the town, and she's really enjoying taking Leo to kinder gym and play group, and, and she didn't expect to enjoy the company of other women in the toddler trenches, as she calls mm-hmm. it, but she's found that to be really supportive. So, yeah. Yeah, Jess and Libby's families really, and their kids are especially intertwined, so much so that Nick feels a little outed, that he's, but he's such a nice guy. He's always there to help. And then it's Valentine's Day night. He's gone a few extra yards to put the romance back in with he and Libby, but there's a storm. What does he end up doing? Well, yeah, so Libby's very... Um very keen to always, you know, they're one big family and help help out Jess. And, and there's a storm on Valentine's night, a 50-year storm, and um, Jess's ceiling fills with water oh. and he has to go over and 
and, um, you know, drill the hole. He's, yeah. He doesn't really want to go. Mm. He wants to stay home with his wife and suggests that they call the SES. But on nights like that, Libby says, don't be ridiculous. She'll have to wait hours. So, yeah, he goes out into the storm and um, and helps her out yet again. Yeah, yet again. And, you know, they th- they talk about this rental that Jess and Leo are living in that's really broken down. And there's a suggestion that they should move into the house next door. But we sense there's a bit of blackmail going on by whom and why you'll have to read the book but there's this little quote what's worse a calculated betrayal or a stupid mistake read the book to yeah find that's out. right but back and to that Alex. was that was a driving force of the book i wanted to explore was there a difference between a calculated betrayal and a stupid mistake when the impact is exactly mm. the same on people's lives and where and how hard is it to truly forgive Mm. And it's really hard. But if we don't forgive, we end up in a bitter mess and then our lives are actually on hold. We all know a person who has never got over something and how bitter they are and that impacts on everything they say and do. Um, So, yeah. We also all know somebody who's met somebody online and this is what Alice is trying to do. That's right. Oh, Fiona. I had a great yeah, deal I... of fun writing Alice's story. <laughs> we, we... Uh, we've got, I interviewed my, um, my, interviewed my uh, extended family because we've got four, um, we've had four weddings and they all met online and that is the way, that's the most popular way Australians are meeting. That report came out just last week and my son's at the largest university in the country. There's, you know, 80,000 students, but no, they're all dating online. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they might have to now. Unfortunately, well, that's right. We're all having to uh, date online at the moment. But yeah, so I signed. I didn't. I didn't engage or neg or ghost anybody. But I went through <laughs> the process of signing up to three different online dating sites and apps so that I understood how they worked. And I can tell you, one of them online, it, that's two hours of my life I will never get back, whereas the Bumble and Tinder apps take about 80 seconds. <laughs> oh. There's a big difference out there. And, of course, it's always an embarrassment. Who who sees your phone? And when Alice has sent a dick pic, she's, unfortunately it's her new employer, Harry, who sees the picture. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. And of course, she sees it and stumbles. It's at Relay for Life, and it's like oh. three in the morning, and her oh. phone's gone off, and and she's exchanging phone, and she just hands it over, and as she sees it, she tries to hide it, but she ends up enlarging it. <laughs> <laughs> and there, that's one of the. So she's um, Harry kind of looks at it, and she says, "Oh, I suppose you won't want me to tutor." tutor Holly anymore with art and he says well yeah that's I do but maybe hold off doing still life <laughs> well I started with a quote from Fiona Lowe's book about parenting and I'll finish with one parenting takes you to places you never expected to go and then abandons you in the mud without a compass well Fiona Lowe is another readable account of what life and circumstances can throw up especially for four women who realise that they may not be in just an ordinary family. Oh, Fiona, a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Okay. That brings us to an end for another week, and we're not sure what's going to happen next week. We'll be trying to provide some programming. We'll do the best we can, but we may have to play uh, some old or previous interviews, but we'll proceed from there and... uh, 
take what fate, destiny and luck brings us, I yes. think. Yes, well, we could have reintroduced some old books. And don't forget, we do have our reading list up if uh, you want to on our website, if you want to have a look through and Spend some time reading. We better get out of here because ruminations, ruminations needs to come in. Ruminations are coming. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.